Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. It is Cyber Monday today, so I think we're going to use that as a jumping off point for our next conversation with Craig Patterson. He is the editor-in-chief at Retailer RetailInsider.com. We're going to be talking about how, say, you know, Canadian shopping habits are evolving quite a bit, especially here locally. He's got an interesting report from the Retail Council of Canada that we're going to dive into. And then a little later on, one of our other regulars, Dan Sutton, he is the CEO of Tantalus Labs. He's going to discuss whether, I guess, BC and Ontario really kind of biffed it when it came to legalization of recreational cannabis. And I say biffed it more so than any other provinces. Uh, Dan's got some interesting insights here, but first let's take it off with Craig. With us now, it's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with this. Craig, any, I don't know, Black Friday or Cyber Monday purchases you've made so far this holiday shopping season? Yes, I didn't plan on doing it at all. And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself in a mall on Black Friday, and holy cow. Wow. <laughs> I got a lot of really great deals, uh, but I did it in a physical store, not online. I don't trust the uh, Canada Post right Okay, well, that actually brings up a very good point here, because right now the Senate is going to be making a final decision on back-to-work legislation for Canada Post workers. Do you think, you know, that this could have a big impact on a lot of the holiday shopping trends for Canadians, whether or not this gets resolved? Um, I think so. I think even if the strike ends, uh, or even if, uh, you know, packages have been getting through to people, I think psychologically, you know, people are still thinking, well, my goodness, is this actually going to get to me? You know, is, are the packages even going to be found? If there's a backlog, will they get lost? I mean, these are all concerns that I personally have had myself. Uh, uh, I think that people, you know, I, I think we're seeing really high numbers in terms of shoppers, and I think they're doing it in physical stores, although, you know, online is still happening. Yeah, you know, it's actually something that I've spoken to other coworkers about, and they have noted that they are a little reluctant to go through online shopping just because of the Canada Post uncertainty. So is this a bit of a boon to some of the smaller stores, the ones that are really trying to compete with the e-commerce giants that are out there? I think it would be to a degree, provided that that store has products that people want and, you know, is in some sort of a convenient location. Yes, I think that uh, perhaps they would get a little bit of a boost uh, compared to what they normally would have gotten if people had, say, gone on to, uh, you know, Amazon. Although Amazon, you know, their deliveries are a bit different. But, you know, certainly, you know, uh, I think generally consumers, you know, if it's online, I think there may have been a bit of a hesitation. Well, the other thing that I'm curious about just with regards to shopping trends for Canadians is how much Black Friday and and Cyber Monday are now, I guess, influencing the way that we shop at this point. Because for me, growing up, it used to be Boxing Day all the way. Black Friday was something that you might go across the border you know, with with your family, but that's only if you're very, very brave. Uh, Is (laughs) Black Friday and is Cyber Monday, are they kind of overtaking Boxing Day in terms of importance for the Canadian retail scene? I think so. I think that we're becoming more American in our consumption now, uh, be, yeah. be it going to large shopping centers, outlet malls, or uh, Black Friday. Uh, studies in Retail Council of Canada came out with a study showing that uh, uh, 40 to 43% of consumers are planning on shopping on Black Friday. We'll find out what the numbers actually were, hopefully. And uh, not to mention Cyber Monday. And that these are, I think, 26% was the number that they quoted for Boxing Day. So it looks like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, especially Black Friday, has taken over right now. That's probably the top busiest. Uh, uh, sale day of the year, but I think December 22nd is actually going to be the busiest shopping day of the year, just given it's a Saturday before Christmas Day. 
Do you have any sort of you know hypotheses as to why this has happened? Do you think it's really e-commerce that has kind of changed the game for the way you know retailers have to deal with things, especially the holiday shopping season here in Canada? To a degree, I don't know if it's just e-commerce. I think it's competition. Uh, we're seeing more you know retailers coming into Canada from around the world than we've ever seen before. Uh, you know, retail is cutthroat if they're competing on prices, service, or otherwise. And uh, I think that retailers now are, you know, discounting deeper and faster uh, to compete against both brick and mortar and online. I think it's just a really tough environment for retailers generally, but some of them are doing very, very well. Well, one thing that I, I do want to talk about, you just brought up the Retail Council of Canada, but it looks as if we'll be getting a new report that points to Metro Vancouver as being, you know, one of the most productive when it comes to malls. Tell me well, a little bit about what you can share at this point with regards to how productive our malls are here in Vancouver. Absolutely. Um, the Vancouver area is a bit of, I guess you say, a superstar in terms of uh, shopping centers. Also, I should mention a study just came out this morning saying that uh, Vancouver uh, residents are the number one uh, e-commerce shoppers in Canada by quite a bit, uh, $3,400 mm. a square foot or something like that. I can send that to you. But uh, <laughs> going to shopping centers, uh, same thing. The most productive shopping centers in Canada on average are in the BC Lower Mainland because some of the malls, you know, aren't technically within Vancouver's borders, like Metropolis at Metro Town. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's really quite phenomenal. We did a study, uh, looked at the top 30 malls in Canada, and uh, seven of those were in the Lower Mainland, which you know is quite remarkable given you know the population of Toronto and Montreal. Vancouver had almost as many as the Greater Toronto Area, and Montreal only had two. Wow. So what does that tell us about the way that we shop or way that malls are set up here? Is it just something distinct about, I guess, shopping culture here on the West Coast? I'm trying to figure that out myself because uh, the BC Lower Mainland is not the wealthiest part of Canada. No. Uh, however, there are people with a lot of money. Uh, they may not necessarily be earning that as income, but uh, I think <laughs> that, you know, it's very much a consumer society. It's quite remarkable to see... Uh, you know, how they're doing. And this isn't just, say, in the luxury area. I mean, uh, you know, luxury often drives high sales in malls, but, you know, Metropolis at Metrotown, which is a very productive mall, is certainly not a luxury mall. You know, it's got Uniqlo, Muji, uh, you know, Hudson Bay. Like, it's a fairly, uh, um, you know, middle-class mall. It just has a lot of great retailers like Uncle Tetsu and, and, you know, retailers people will line up for. So, yeah, why is uh, the Lower Mainland? I mean, I think there's less mall per square, mall square footage per person mm-hmm. uh, in the Vancouver area, but... Yeah. Uh, people just seem to like to shop, which is actually, you know, there's a stereotype of uh, the person living in the lower mainland that wasn't, say, fashion forward. Uh, and uh, I don't think that, you know, we can certainly say at least they're shopping. Well, yeah, I guess uh, less room for sprawl, more room for mall. Uh, that Maybe that's what uh, we can do uh, <laughs> going forward. But uh, finally, uh, before we let you go, Craig, uh, tell us a little bit about the growing trends of food halls within these malls. I, I guess we're getting some more details about what's going on in Oak Ridge, too. I think it's fascinating. Um, we're seeing uh, basically, I don't want to say farmers markets, but we're seeing uh, these you know food centers that are opening, be it in uh, shopping centers or in the case in downtown Vancouver at the Post, which is uh, the former post office that Quadreal is redeveloping primarily for Amazon as a mm-hmm. tenant. Um, it's I, I, you know food drives traffic quite often, foot traffic. Uh, people like to you know go and eat food and take photos of food, and you know we're in this Instagram generation and. Uh, people are becoming a little more in tune to what they're eating. And uh, the first suburban uh, food market in Canada opened uh, in suburban Toronto at the Upper Canada Mall in Newmarket. And I was told that I think it drew, uh, traffic saw a spike of 25% in the entire mall. And even sales at the food court, which still remains there, are also up quite a bit. So, um, you know, so far it's looking successful. I think we'll see more of these Oak Ridge Shopping Center. I think we'll get a 100,000 square foot uh, food market slash food hall. And that will be a game changer. That will transform uh, 
you know, the neighborhood for the better, I think, uh, for those that can afford it. I just got the price list and the price list uh, for those condos are, is astronomical. <laughs> 2.5 million for oh, a wow. 1,000 square foot two bedroom apartment. But anyways, that's, uh, I don't know if I'll be living there. Well, you know, I think we've, <laughs> nor will I, but I think we've come a long way since, say, Orange Julius dominated at the mall I grew up uh, going to, but uh, I'll be endeavoring to visit a lot of these halls. But for now, Craig, thanks for joining us on the program. Well, thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. Stay with us. Dan Sutton from Tantalus Labs, he joins us next. With us now, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so we're now a month out since the rollout of legalized recreational cannabis. I think that we've had some fun, interesting stories uh, pop out out of this. We can dive into that in just a moment. But what is your overall assessment one month into this, Dan? Slow and steady may not be winning the race. Okay, I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> let's uh, start off with a post-media story uh, from Aurora CEO, uh, Terry Booth. He was at a panel in Las Vegas the other week. And it was a very colorful panel. Uh, Profanity-laced is how you might be able to describe it as well. And comments directed specifically at British Columbia and Ontario. Uh, does he have a point here where he's talking about how these, and I'm paraphrasing, these two provinces probably crap the bed worse than anyone else across Canada? Is that a fair assessment of, say, BC and Ontario at this point? Uh, I, I think it's a fair assessment. I think his emotions are entirely justified. I think you know anybody's going to speculate on the delivery of a of a CEO when they use profanity or when they use explicit language. But Terry is Terry, and Terry's going to do what Terry's going to do. Yeah, uh, and he's led his company to to massive success and notoriety globally. So you know he's the he's the CEO you married if you are an, an Aurora investor. But nonetheless, um, yeah, BC has has one public store and one private store that's rolled out. Uh, you know, in, in comparison, Alberta has 70 that are currently operational. Now, this isn't all milk and honey for Alberta uh, because they also have the same supply constraints that are permeating the rest of the industry nationally. And so some of those stores are not able to get the product that they would like to sell. So we've kind of got two issues going on here, a slow store rollout, uh, which I think is problematic in British Columbia, problematic in Ontario. It's you know, the, the most convenient access channel for the majority of cannabis users. And it's really important that these retail storefronts do in fact exist. Uh, but we've also got supply constraints that, you know, you and I have been calling for some time on this program, but the, the rest of the country is now sort of waking up and realizing we don't quite have enough cannabis to go around yet. And it may be six months, a year or 18 months before we actually see that supply hit the market. Yeah, those supply constraints, could they have realistically been mitigated earlier on by Health Canada by distributing licenses I, more generously? Were there legitimate concerns about you know, uh, you know, certain producers at that point? Where, where, how do you assess Health Canada? Knowing, of course, that Health Canada has licensed you and you don't want to say anything too nasty. But uh, what could we have done to address the supply constraints earlier on, though? Health Canada always appreciates my candor, and I've been critical of them when they've deserved it, and I've encouraged their progress when they've deserved that as well. And they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because Health Canada has been celebrated by having this 
world-leading quality assurance standard, this very thorough regulatory obligation. Uh, some people have criticized it as too thorough, but at least it is internationally saleable as an example of a highly regulated system for production uh, that does that does function for those firms that have the sophistication to be able to execute on that standard. So they really, I think, have a huge political interest, a huge vested interest, and a huge long-term vision to be able to maintain that standard and improve it where where they see fit. Um, and that does not lend itself well to uh, a massive, you know, functionally supplied, diverse marketplace. There are only a handful of firms that have gotten these licenses. I think around 120 cultivation licenses, less than 50 sales licenses of 3,500 plus applicants last I checked. Um, so th- this barrier to entry is not about finance. It's not about network. It's not about political clout. It's about sophistication when it comes to quality assurance. And Health Canada is committed to maintaining that standard, which I think doesn't lend itself well to uh, to perfectly competitive market dynamics. Well, we have another story uh, this time from the Canadian press, and it's diving into the fact that, well, uh, brisk business is being had by the illegal dispensaries in the month since the rollout. You, you would think, or, or just on a Phys- uh, philosophical level that if you have a legal industry, then that would you know allow people to you know uh, slough off what was previously illegal. That hasn't been the case here. Are these two issues connected with regards to supply constraints going on at the legal retailers, uh, e-commerce as well? And I guess is that connected to the fact that the illegal dispensaries continue to do business across Canada? Very much so. I think in Vancouver we see a political landscape and Victoria as well where. Politicians are apprehensive to, you know, inhibit these dispensaries or shut them down until we see some legal supplement to the to the cannabis demand that we have in the city. It's unlikely that they're going to say, okay, let's, you know, kick down the doors and create a huge political mess, which then will have its own uh, media takes. And and I think quite a lot of people are are invested in the success of their sort of local cannabis community. So we have yet to see a legal store, uh, private or public, operate in the city of Vancouver or the city of Victoria. Perhaps there'll be more political incentive to move to a, a regulated system and, and endorsing that regulated system once the, the dispensaries, you know, can't say that they're supplying a need that no other uh, storefront can. But we've also had the government come out and say, if you guys are operating these illegal dispensaries uh, after legalization date, forget about getting into the legal industry. Uh, Do you think that this is creating disincentives? Uh, What do you think the potential impact is for some of these people that would want to make this transition? But at this point, there doesn't really seem to be any practical alternatives for offering these products to people. I think in in advice that I give about the cannabis industry often, I say, think long-term, think about the next five years. All you need to do is think about the next six months, where it's very likely that we will see legal retailers exist in the city of Vancouver, private legal retailers, hopefully some public legal retailers as well. But ultimately, if if you're you know, cashing in on the last few months of, of revenues from the black markets and putting your license at risk. I think it, it's really important that you look at the long-term trajectory of how this industry is going to play out because it, we, we are at a humble baseline. We are at a slow start and a, and a basic beginning, but we will see innovation, new industry, you know, new opportunity grow and thrive in this legal cannabis business in Canada uniquely, you know, potentially for the next five years. So let's, 
let's think about how we can best impact our communities and the businesses long-term. And I, I really hope that we see some of the best operators in the dispensary business in Vancouver come over and, and endorse the regulations and, and become regulated partly so that they can, they can sell products from producers like me. And I, I of course, you got to get that in there as well. But uh, it was interesting that I did notice uh, some, and it's been reported that some dispensaries were closing up shop ahead of legalization date. Is it just kind of reflective of people taking more of the long-term view of things that they want to be this in this for the long haul and they don't want to have any barriers to them moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. And and the ones that haven't closed down, we've heard a lot of them crying poverty. We can't afford to shut our doors for a couple of months. Well, most licensed producers had to operate for years without revenue. Yeah. And some of these dispensaries are making ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a day. So if you haven't been squirreling away, you know, your cash reserves so that you can sustain a few months of non-operation, you haven't been thinking very forwardly about about how to best approach this business. But I mean, if I was in the position of operating a dispensary, which is a pretty weird hypothetical because we don't do anything illegal at Tantalus Labs, and, and I had to forego a few months of revenue to then capitalize on years and years of opportunity, that's a decision that I would make every time. All right. Uh, I, I want to go backwards uh, for just a second here as, as we start to wrap up here. But the other thing that Terry Booth brought up, though, is he highlighted maybe Saskatchewan, maybe Saskatchewan got it right. I'm not super familiar with uh, Saskatchewan versus, say, uh, BC or, or Alberta. I, I'm putting you on the spot here, uh, but uh, do you think that that's an accurate assessment here with regards to the model that uh, Saskatchewan has been employing? So S- Saskatchewan does not have an inherent monopoly distribution platform operated by the government. There is still a tariff that you need to pay to be able to sell cannabis legally to the to their provincial regulator. But firms like Tannels Labs can deal directly with retailers in Saskatchewan. So we can have a, a group of 10 or 15 different retailers that we've hand selected that we liked. And uh, there's a little bit more economic efficiency because the, the the distribution costs are not as high as centralized distribution as we'd see in BC. So it's also easy to say that Saskatchewan got it right because they're a very small province. They have a small population, you know, that they're, they're not looking to distribute cannabis as far and wide as British Columbia or certainly not Ontario or Quebec. So maybe not entirely a fair, a fair analogy, mm-hmm. but I, I do believe that creating and enabling the efficiencies that come with a more privatized supply chain will result in faster industry proliferation, ergo faster erosion of the black market in terms of market share. And uh, it does seem as though maybe it's because of lack of access relative to British Columbia and Saskatchewan, they will likely see a far faster growth of their industry relative to the the black market that they're substituting for. Okay. Well, Dan, my suspicion is this time next year, we'll have discussions about, say, the cannabis advent calendars. I, I, I <laughs> We'll see if we're coming along that far at this point, but we're not quite there yet. But uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. And Legal Cannabis does make a fantastic stocking stuffer as you're getting ready for the holiday season. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. And that's it for BIV today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on iTunes or Stitcher or just go ahead and tell your friends to subscribe. You can also go to BIV.com for all of our news stories. 